You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers. This is an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm a medical oncologist and also a volunteer with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Paul Richardson, who is the clinical program leader and director of clinical research at the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And he's also the R.J. Corman Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Ken. It's really a pleasure uh, to join you, and thank you to our listeners as well. And in particular, thank you to the wonderful team at uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for putting on such a nice program. Paul, this is, I mean, for me personally, real pleasure to have this time with you. Because what I'd like to find out for myself and also several of our fellows here at University of Maryland put in some questions as well. But you know, you've been doing this a long time. I wanted to get a sense about your own journey as a clinical investigator and how it shaped your perspective when you're actually seeing patients. So let me ask you with that in mind. Last year, I heard you give a talk, I believe it was at Dana-Farber, talking about ASH 2017. And in that talk, you quoted your mentor, Tom Fry, saying, it is the models of the lies that help us see the truth. And so I just wanted to ask you, what did Tom mean by that? And how has that affected you? Ken, well, thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, I was, I was, I've, I've been blessed with having many fabulous mentors over the years, and in particular here at Dana-Farber. And Tom Fry was one of the pioneers of combination chemotherapy and is a giant in cancer. Tom had this incredible vision and always put patients first and quality research at, at, at the very forefront of what we did. And what he was really saying was preclinical models are informative but they are not necessarily predictive, which I think is very important to appreciate. And at the same time, the best model that you can possibly have is your patient. That is the privilege of what we do as clinical researchers, that we offer, hopefully, our patients the very best standards of care and cutting-edge therapy to improve their outcome. But I think Tom's major theme in terms of the models was to really understand their limitations as well and recognize that they can inform, but they can also lead you in directions that can sometimes be uh, counterintuitive. Uh, and I think probably a best example to help frame it for your fellows and, and others would be that in the setting of cytotoxic chemotherapy models, obviously cell kill had always been a sort of dominant stratagem and a measure of that efficacy. But what I think we've realized, for example, in myeloma, is that the complexity of tumor microenvironment, the complexity of the patient's immune milieu, and the fortunately the, the privilege of now having novel biologically targeted therapies means that traditional cytotoxic models really you know do not lead us in directions that necessarily make sense in the modern era. So let me ask you about the biology of the disease because what you said raises such interesting questions. We call it myeloma, but how much heterogeneity is there between patients and even within an individual patient? How many clones and how are they different? And can you have several drivers of the disease all at the same time? 
Ken, that's a, a superb question, and I, I would say to you that uh, your, your last question is one of the most important. There are multiple drivers of myeloma. It is called multiple myeloma for a reason. It's not only extraordinarily heterogeneous between patients, but within a patient's natural history with the disease, the genetic complexity of the illness can change. And the interaction between the tumor itself and its microenvironment leads to this phenomenology of clonal tiding, which is really important to appreciate, where you can go into quiescent phases where there's almost a plateau of the disease and then a surge can follow. And I think that's part of the art of managing multiple myeloma, is understanding this complexity and appreciating what it means when you make therapeutic choices for your patients. And that's to me anyway, one of the privileges of our myeloma clinic is that we follow our patients over the longitudinal, over the long haul, increasingly uh, a long haul, thank goodness. And in that context, one gets a real understanding for each patient's disease. And I think that we're blessed with obviously exciting new tools, not least of which are the sophisticated genetic analyses that we now have available, ranging, of course, from you know fluorescent in situ hybridization all the way through to whole genome sequencing but need to recognize that just as important is not just what's going on in the disease itself, but what's happening in the patient. And obviously, MRD helps us analyze this too, but recognizing that assessment of minimal residual disease remains, I think, a new tool and very much a research tool that will help us with regulatory approvals, but I would be somewhat careful about using it ubiquitously in clinical practice yet, because I think in terms of therapeutic choices, it has it, it brings to the fore what you alluded to a moment ago, Ken, which is this incredible heterogeneity. Because on the one hand, you can have an MRD-negative patient who unfortunately relapses and progresses very quickly within, within, say, six months to a year. And yet, in our practices, we have this subset of patients who are MRD-positive for many years and typically enjoy clinical benefit from immunomodulatory agents and yet you know, do very well for long periods of time, pointing to the fact that the complexity of minimal disease in myeloma is a function not just of the disease itself, but also very importantly of, of the patient, of the host. I just wanted to sort of bring that thought to a sort of logical close, which was to say that the good news is that we have backbone agents that can target myeloma biology throughout its course, and then we have now new next-generation inhibitors that are specific and more targeted that can be rationally added to the backbone. And that gives us a continuum of therapeutic opportunity that, frankly, Ken, as you and I know from our you know, long careers in, in oncology, uh, was certainly not the case not so long ago. Paul, based on, on a lot of things that you've just said, so, so here are a couple questions actually that, that came from colleagues and from, from our fellows. In 2019, you know, in a community setting, if I saw a patient with myeloma, I likely would do a bone marrow and I would do electrophoresis studies and I would, and I may do imaging studies as well. But what is the state of the art, best care that I could offer, other oncologists could offer in terms of the initial workup to highly understand the disease, to characterize it so that we can look for MRD? That's a great question, Ken. I think the important point about diagnosis and, and, and prognosis is getting a comprehensive view of the patient and, of course, the disease. And in that context, I agree with you that imaging is key. I personally, I still use, because I find it very useful, skeletal imaging that's classic, the skeletal survey. I do increasingly use PET-CT if I'm at all concerned about bulk disease that may not be being captured on more traditional imaging. I do like to use MRI to understand, for example, 
patterns of distribution of disease in the, in the thoracolumbar and sacral spine, particularly when it comes to marrow signal. And of course, if there are any uh, aspects of patient symptomatology that are relevant, such as back pain, I think in the context of the bone marrow assessment, that's obviously critical. Tissue diagnosis is vital. And in that setting, uh, flow cytometry to understand cell surface markers of the myeloma is obviously relevant, and you know, light chain restriction, etc. But also, most importantly, are what do we have in terms of genetic testing? And I think right now, the very basics are metaphase cytogenetics and FISH. I think beyond that, the ability to use more sophisticated uh, gene expression tools is absolutely appropriate to consider, but I typically myself use those in the context of research. In terms of day-to-day practice, the use of uh, more complicated techniques of gene expression profile, I've found honestly to be very patient-specific and and not necessarily something that one would recommend to everyone. I think because as long as you capture key genetic features, such as on fluorescent in situ hybridization, translocation 1114 for therapeutic opportunity, obviously provided by some of the newer agents, in particular venetoclax. Conversely, however, understanding high risk, which is best characterized by 17P deletion, and obviously other more ominous translocations such as 1416 and 414, one then can start to capture an idea of a risk profile for the patient that can then govern treatment. I think the important message, for, especially for fellows in training, is that getting enough information to fully understand the disease is critical, also getting enough information about the patient is vital. Cardiovascular function, renal function, comorbidities, all of these are relevant to uh, approaching the patient. And then I think one can make rational choices of the three or four drug platforms that we currently typically have available for initial treatment. Let me ask you about targets or targetable changes in myeloma. Having been practicing many years and and obviously looking at the CML uh, situation and knowing there's the BCR able and how exciting it was and and really the success we've seen. What are the, uh, in a sense, smoking guns in myeloma? Have there been, just for you in your career, any of those aha moments where you say, wow, here's a molecular target and here's what we can do about it? Well, I think that there have. I mean, I think that probably the most important and relevant today is 1114 and the extraordinarily promising data arising from the use of venetoclax. Having said that, in itself, it provides a very important clue as to why in myeloma, the classically targeted approach that's so beneficial, as you point out, in other hematologic malignancies such as CML do not apply in myeloma. For example, with venetoclax, you can be 1114 negative and still combine the drug with a proteasome inhibitor, an overdrive proteasome inhibitor-mediated resistance through BCL2, and you don't need to be 11.14 positive to derive that benefit. I, I think what's really interesting and conceptually important to grasp is that in myeloma, our best drugs are broadly active. I'd love to quote Bill Dalton, who some of, your, of our audience may remember, a super leader from Moffitt and a great... Uh, researcher in myeloma as well as cancer pharmacology broadly but Bill always used to say that the dirtier the drug the better in myeloma because essentially you need to hit many targets um, but obviously in a biologically rational way and immunomodulatory treatment forms just one example proteasome inhibition obviously does in another way and of course some of our other agents illustrate it beautifully of course the monoclonal antibodies perhaps being classic in the sense that targeting CD38 so successfully as daratumumab and isotuximab increasingly now has done, you see that it's multiple effects on the disease that make it effective in myeloma. 
So it's interesting. It's really a different model of disease than, than CML. I think that's true, Ken. And I think when one thinks of all the other small molecules that have been developed in myeloma and those that have been successful, what's interesting to me is our ability to develop new targets that are distinct. So, for example, selected inhibition of nuclear export proteins has been a really, I, I think, a new and very important breakthrough in our understanding of therapeutics in myeloma, recognizing some of the challenges with the first-in-class molecule, Selenexor, and some of its side effect profile. But what we've found is that when you combine it, it's remarkably active and better tolerated, particularly on a weekly lower-dose schedule. So I think there are examples there of mechanistic differences between drug classes that we should exploit and at the same time the highly targetable approach which is dependent on one specific mutation still has a role but may be broadly somewhat more limited than it is for example in other diseases. I just found it very very interesting just a few minutes ago the concept of the disease being quiescent and then changing becoming more aggressive what are some of the biologic differences between smoldering myeloma and the disease of myeloma? And let me link that also to the, to the issue of you know, patients who, again, may have favorable biology and yet it acts aggressive or have unfavorable biology and it acts more indolent. What controls that and how much is the disease and how much is the patient? Well, Ken, it's a great question. And I think the important point here is that um, it is all of the above. And I think in smoldering disease, we're learning that there is a spectrum of disease and associated risk, that there are, with the novel agents, excellent new strategies that can provide non-toxic approaches to shutting that process down in a way that prolongs clinical benefit and improves outcome in the long haul. I think that we may end up in a situation, honestly, Ken, where we have monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance on the one hand, and then early myeloma on the other. And this smoldering space starts to evolve into something where perhaps arguably it won't exist anymore because we either have myeloma or a plasma cell dyscrasia that warrants treatment and then a plasma cell dyscrasia where you can simply sit tight and watch. And my, my experience in the smoldering space has been toxicity is, is essential to minimize. You cannot have agents in the smoldering space that are toxic because you absolutely need to not in any way make the patient feel less well than when you start. And at the same time, uh, I think the immunological approaches in the smoldering space, to me anyway, the most attractive at the moment. So, so what are some examples? I mean, if you saw a patient today with, with smoldering myeloma who you felt needed treatment, what would you do first? I, I'd love to hear about your, your clinical days. Well, this is great. I mean, basically, in terms of the smoldering space, I first of all, you know, pertinent to your previous question about full assessment, do a proper and full assessment to evaluate risk. And that, to me, you know, again, the good workhorse clinical tools include 24-hour urine assessment, uh, free light testing is essential, genetic testing, and obviously, you know, participation in clinical research protocols to ideally bank at least uh, material that can be then used for future analysis at a later date proper and comprehensive imaging. I think in the smoldering space, Ken, it becomes really important, actually, to have pretty comprehensive imaging because we must avoid understaging the patient, in other words, underestimating the, the extent of disease burden. And in terms of therapy, I love to think in terms of you know, bisphosphonates being valuable if there's any evidence of bone loss. There's not only obviously the anti-resorptive effect of bisphosphonate, but also from the aminobisphosphonates, this potent effect on gamma delta T cells preclinically that, that may be relevant clinically. And then, of course, there are other newer agents in the bone space, not in, least of which is denosumab, which may be 
particularly ideal for any patient with renal impairment, for example. Then in terms of other strategies, if they have immune paresis, for example, I like to use intravenous immune globulin if they're having recurrent infections. And whilst those don't form into the classical myeloma-defining event criteria that are currently used, I'm very suspicious when a patient has recurrent infection that there's someone I need to watch carefully. I love the protocols that are currently available in the smoldering space. These are a variety, obviously. There are numbers that include monoclonal antibody treatment. They include lenalidomide-based strategies where an immune modulator is being used with a well-tolerated active proteasome inhibitor such as exazomib. Uh, And then, of course, there are, I think, these very interesting immunotherapeutic approaches where we're using vaccines in combination with other strategies to uh, optimize immune effects that could even, which can hopefully um, result in improved outcome in patients. So I think there are a variety of uh, strategies. But in a nutshell, with smoldering, I think of prickle participation, targeting bone loss, minimizing other effects that could promote disease progression, such as a recurrent infection, Uh, and careful observation. Careful observation is absolutely the key. It's very interesting, Ken. You can have sophisticated tools and genetic information that put patients at higher risk, you know, and there are some features that are obvious, you know, IgA isotype, abnormal kappa lambda ratios, 17p deletion, things like that that you do obviously worry about. But there's nothing better than actually watching and monitoring the patient carefully. Exactly, exactly. What I'm hearing, I think, is basically, at least in smoldering myeloma, from your talking about your clinical care, even in patients with myeloma, there's some benefits to oral-only route. You want to do things that are, that are convenient for the patient, that are low in toxicities, that are sort of safe in the long run. Is that a fairly good summary? Oh, that's an excellent summary, and I think convenience and safety are key, but also recognizing that there is an important point at which you determine you have to actually do things. You think that, you know, there's sometimes what can be seen as a sort of watch and wait, do nothing, and then suddenly, you know, jump straight to induction remission therapy and transplant. I think that there is real value to be gained from prolonging this early phase for as long as one reasonably can with non-toxic effective strategies. You mentioned more broadly how much does the immune system, a patient's immune system, interact with myeloma? What are the things that you're excited about such as vaccines in terms of the future? Well it's a great question Ken. I think it's important to realize that myeloma is fundamentally a malignancy of the immune system. I mean it's a hematologic cancer which arguably originates from the queen of, of B-cell malignancy, which is, of course, the terminally differentiated plasma cell, which is arguably the most sophisticated immune effector on the B-cell axis. As you think of it in those terms, it makes sense then to deploy maximal assets in terms of immunotherapeutics. I mean, obviously, when we first started using the immunomodulatory drugs, we didn't fully appreciate the benefit of the immune system. But having said that, we now realize that that is quite dramatic, actually, and that the immune effects of the immunomodulatory drugs are actually key to the way they work. The immune manipulation is essential. The vaccines provide memory, hopefully, uh, and can also be highly effective adjuncts. And, of course, monoclonal antibodies can contribute to that as well in the course of our treatment approaches. So I'm personally very excited about immune strategies in myeloma, and they range very broadly, again, not simply from you know these autologous immune strategies, but also from the constructs of cellular therapies, as you know, which are gaining such uh, appeal. 
through the adoptive immunotherapy, essentially. Right. You're talking about uh, CAR-T? Exactly. CAR-T and also what is particularly interesting, some of these other approaches, such as the uh, bispecific T-cell engaging antibodies, the antibody drug conjugates. I mean, this whole space is, as you know, becoming uh, incredibly exciting and promising. It's certainly been exciting, and especially, in, I'd say, the last five years. I really want to thank you for myself and also the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for joining us today. Ken, it's truly my pleasure. For additional Leukemia and Lymphoma Society resources and continuing education activities, please visit www.lls.org CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact the LLS Information Resource Center at 800-955-4572. Information specialists are available to provide personalized support to help you and your patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources, as well as to connect them with our clinical trial support center nurses. For personalized assistance in finding an appropriate trial and throughout the entire clinical trial process. They're there to provide also an additional resource to the healthcare team. So again, please visit www.lls.org CE or call 800-955-4572. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.